Today, we'll be discussing Ali's recommendations for his favorite comedy specials, and we'll be discussing why laughter exists in humans. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, to generate a bit of laughter in 2022, Ali will be giving his recommendations for his favorite comedy specials. Then we'll discuss the biological basis of how and why we develop laughter as humans. All right. Yeah. So right away, I have to say, when you say favorite comedy specials, it is a little bit like picking your favorite child or your favorite meal. You know, these things are changing all the time. But you do have a favorite out of your four children, right? I do, but it's also changing at all times. <laughs> Whichever one says, uh, Papa, congratulations on your role on Run the Burbs. That's my favorite. And then the next person, you know, the next, then we have dinner and Papa, I found dinner delicious. All right. Now you're my favorite. To be honest, it's almost, it's always my youngest saying all those things for now. We'll see how it all goes. What I wanted to do is just because we're so inundated with, you know, comedy content, whoever your one or variety of streaming services are, there's just so many different comedy shows. And I think there's examples of ones that were really like sort of rushed to market, you know, and ones that were done like Nate Bargatze, one of my favorite comedians of recent years. He clearly was desperate to do something and did one to a socially distant outdoor audience. Oh, right. what he would do, you know? There's examples of like Chris Tucker. It's probably one of the worst comedy specials of all time. Never, never, ever invest any of your time if you have any self-respect in Chris Tucker. That. Was he a stand-up? I don't even know that. He was, was an he? amazing stand-up, oh, man. Yeah. He was actually, I remember seeing him on BET's. What is it called? Martin Lawrence used to host live Deaf Comedy Jam. I saw him on Deaf Comedy Jam when I was visiting my cousin in Indianapolis and stuff. He was great. He was a crazy amount of energy. And the beast that is stand-up comedy requires you to constantly be at it or you lose your rhythm, you lose your timing, you know, you lose it. Even if he had other people write for him, it just, I watched it with two other comedians and we were it made us feel hollow inside. We were like, this is a discredit to the entire industry. So with that all in mind, I was like, rather than pick something out of the last two, three years where people are rushing out, let me pick some classics for me. And I think everybody knows about, you know, the prior and Carlin and Robin Williams and all these various specials. I wanted to pick three that might be a little bit more accessible as far as, you know, getting able to see them if you haven't seen them or if you haven't seen them in a long time. And I wanted to highlight specials we may not talk about as much. So the first one, and I gave you this list. Ali and I were talking, we're like, 2022, kind of a bummer so far. So let's do something to kind of like make people laugh. And as you said, maybe not the classic ones. So yeah, so you have three suggestions for me and the listeners, right? Correct. So I'll go through them. Number one is Killing Them Softly, a Dave Chappelle Special from June of 2004. Wanda Sykes, I'ma Be Me, February 2010 is when that was released. That was her second HBO special. And then Dress to Kill, 
recorded in 1998, Eddie Izzard. And also when you are, if you're just sort of discovering, I always say this, you know, like I, Bill Burr, one of my favorite comedians, but if you watch Bill Burr right now with no context of who Bill Burr is, you might be like, this is a very angry person who needs professional help for their rage issues. And I'm not sure where the funny is. I'm not sure why they get away with saying these kind of things. But to watch the development of Bill Burr and to see him over the years gives me a different eye on Bill Burr than other people will have, you know, a different understanding of who the person is. Now, that's a lot to expect of somebody. If I go watch Bill Burr, but listen, go back eight specials, watch his Comedy Central half hour from 2003 first before you make sure, you know, like crazy. It's ridiculous to ask that of people, but this is the reality. Like people don't exist in a bubble. They're a progression of who they are. Okay, so Ali, we got those three comedy specials perfect. So myself and the listeners are going to pause the podcast right now, and I'm going to watch all those, and I'll get back to you, uh, and we can talk about them. Okay. I'm back. I finished watching all of those. Did not go to the bathroom during that whole time. So it's going to be You're very diligent. You're nothing if not diligent. Which one do you want to start with? I was mentioning Bill Burr before you went away for your alleged five and a half hours of viewing and listening there, Asif. But the reason I bring him up also is because this, this idea of like comics cannot exist in a bubble and they're a progression or... It's good to see them as such, at least with certain comedians. And Dave Chappelle is in a lot of hot water right now. Dave Chappelle, his various views, particularly on trans people, have really obscured who he is. This special in 2004 was after he had done one year of The Chappelle Show. So he got his own show on HBO, famously did two seasons before the third season, turned down what apparently was a $50 million paycheck. And uh, on the verge of what seemed like burnout left to Africa. This is before all that, right? So this is really like Dave Chappelle has done a year, a season of a groundbreaking, phenomenally well-received comedy show and now has an audience. And he goes to San Francisco. He tapes at the Fillmore legendary venue where, you know, the George Carlins and the Richard Pryors have all, uh, Robin Williams have all performed. Remember that commercial for Sunny Delight when all the kids run in from outside playing and they all run to the fridge? <sighs> all right, I got some purple stuff, some Sunny D. As soon as they say Sunny D, all the kids go, yeah! Watch the black kid in the back. If you ever see that commercial again, look at that black kid. He'd be like, I want that purple stuff. I think the reason I like this special is twofold. Number one, the material, it's real early Dave Chappelle, meaning he would, you know, now you're used to Dave Chappelle preaching sometimes for extended periods of yeah, time. It's in his true. Comedy. Sometimes you wonder like, sorry, where's the joke in all of this? Right. And it, there is a feeling of self-indulgence where it's like, Dave's just like, man, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, you know? And he, of course he has the right to do that, but it's, it's great to revisit certain parts of comedians' lives and certain pieces of their legacy. And I think this particular special is incredible at, at tackling some very, very serious issues and then going into pure absurd Dave Chappelle where you're like, that never happened. Wait, did that happen? No, there's no way that happened. That's insane. And also, 
one of the greatest things, and, and I don't know if there's a way for anybody to see this, but one of the greatest things I saw, keep in mind that I was not doing comedy when I first saw this special. One of the greatest things I ever saw was the DVD extras of this DVD. Because the DVD extras show him working on the bits in different rooms, like the comedy cellar, wherever he's got the signs behind him, he's on stage in these various clubs. You watch all the bits in their final form and you laugh and you enjoy it. And then you see what they looked like at different points. And it's incredible. And I, I've rewatched this since I became a comedian. And again, you even as a comedian, you forget. You're like, oh my God, of course. He is a genius, but he also, like every comedian, needs to work things out, needs to figure it out, needs to sort of build and craft and mold and to see it in, in some cases in its infancy or not completely done. And then to hear the final product, you're like, wow, he's a craftsman, right? He's a, truly a craftsman. And I really love that part. If there's any way people can see that, I would highly encourage it. But before I go on about some of the bits, tell me what your thoughts were on this special. I think it's funny. I think Dave Chappelle's biggest strength is when he's doing his storytelling. That's really the type of comic he is. And I kind of want to contrast him with some of the other people. And this is just me learning. I don't know anything about this. I'm just like my opinion from watching this and watching comedians. Like his is more of a storytelling thing. And his stories will go on. And as you're saying, you listen to them, you're like, wait, is this true? And then you're like, no, it's not. Or is it? And I thought it was good. <laughs> some things are dated in it. But of course, this is like, you know, 15 years ago. So I'm not surprised that some of the things are dated. I liked it. I think that two of the greatest bits from this special, and for me, great bits are the ones that stay with you. Stuff that Chris Rock said 20 years ago or however long ago Bring the Pain was, still stay in my mind when I see that thing or things Bill Burr has said like a decade ago when he makes fun of people who are like, you know, he has this joke about in the way people. We just keep creating more in the way people. And then he talks about people are like, oh, this neighborhood, it's really exploding. It's really exploding, this neighborhood. And he goes, no, it's not exploding. People are having sex and they're creating more in the way people. So every time somebody talks about a neighborhood, like, oh, this neighborhood is really, I'm like, just more in the way people. And I can never stop thinking about that. So there's two bits from here. The, the, the one that I really think about, maybe even way too often, is this idea about celebrity culture and celebrity worship. And Dave Chappelle talks about like, I have no idea why people listen to celebrities. And he's remembering about around 9-11 when MTV was like, this is a terrible tragedy that's happened. We've got Ja Rule on the line to share his thoughts. And he goes, man, who, who the hell cares what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? I might have some questions or I might want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You know, I never wake up after something goes bad. Ja, somebody find Ja to make sense of it all. So, yeah. So poor Ja took quite a hit for all of this. And I felt sorry for Ja Rule for a few years there, but I, I no longer do. I watched the Fire Festival documentary and Ja Rule can suck an egg. But all that aside, it's really about so every single time I see somebody being interviewed, I'm like, why are they interviewing them about that? Who cares what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? It's become this thing. And, and to the point where, as we discussed on this show, there was that terrible tragedy in, in London, Ontario, a few months ago in 2021 with this family in London, Muslim family was sort of mowed down by somebody in their car. And the CBC was like, we'd like to have you come on and talk about it. And even I was like, 
who cares what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? I had that in my mind. Like, I don't want to be people to be like, why is Ali Hassan commenting about I'm not from London, you know, my family, it's not my family. It's not, you know, I, I, what connection do I have to this? And I needed to be connected. So that Ja Rule thing is really a big part of the way I think and I approach life. The other joke from this special, which I think is truly underlines Dave Chappelle's genius as a, as a writer and a thinker and a performer. He's talking about this joke. He's talking about R. Kelly. If you don't know about the R. Kelly trial, either, you know, congratulations, you live a, you live a great life, or you've really been sort of sleeping on this intentionally. But I encourage you to look up Jim Derogatis. Jim Derogatis, for over a decade, documented a journalist who documented the R. Kelly trial. In any case, he's talking about R. Kelly. And he starts by talking about how they are taking our black heroes away from us. They're taking our black celebrities down. R. Kelly, come, Michael Jackson comes up. I don't know where Mike Tyson comes up. But then he goes to, you know, R. Kelly known for sort of, you know, videotaped urinating on these women. And he said, I don't think people are asking the right question. The question isn't why did R. Kelly do that to a 15-year-old. The question is, how old is 15 really? And if you look up how old is 15 really, Dave Chappelle, you'll see this bit. And he talks about something that's very, very deep. He talks about something that's now known as or became known as missing white girl syndrome, right? He talks about like when this girl, Elizabeth Smart, was kidnapped in Utah, it was huge and everybody knew Elizabeth Smart's name. Then he goes on to compare that to the media coverage of this young child, Erica Pratt, black girl who was kidnapped. It looks at the difference, and it's a huge, huge issue. And I wouldn't say many comedians. Some comedians have talked about it. Patrice O'Neill is another comedian who has discussed it. But it's a very, very big issue. It touches on a huge, a very broad subject about kind of this, you know, white supremacist message that pervades media. Like things are more important when they happen to white people. I think white supremacist people might think, oh, you mean like the Proud Boys and stuff like that. What you mean is the premacy of coverage of white people in the media and black people, well, you know, and many people might be saying, well, what did that seven-year-old girl do to, to get kidnapped? Whereas they may not be saying that with the white people. And this exactly. is the whole thing that he's kind of getting at with this. He is. And I should mention, he makes it hilarious. He makes it very, very funny. And it's a, and, and so he goes so deep. And then, you know, minutes later, he's talking about some man who hijacked a bus by masturbating on the bus and uh, everybody was in a hostage situation. I mean, it's really like this going back and forth between the absurd and the important. It's quite something. It's all planned. It's all planned. It's all like which joke should come first, which joke will have this crowd in my pocket and then I can get a little serious and then I can go back to the absurd. And so the dance that he does with the audience, as far as his set goes, I think it's really one of the best specials I've seen. It stays with me to this day, and I really like it. And then you, I try to work out, you know, try to stay on top of stuff. But once you get across that 40 mark, stuff just starts relaxing and <laughs> just doing whatever it wants to do. Like this area right here, I just named it. This is Esther. <laughs> this is Esther. This, this role right here, this is Esther role. This is her. is a beast <laughs> loves bread and alcohol 
Why don't we talk uh, next about Wanda Sykes and her special, I'm a Be Me. I don't know if people know a lot about Wanda Sykes. She's a hilarious entertainer. I, I don't know if people have seen her. She's been on, she was a writer on the Chris Rock show. Uh, Emmy Award winning yeah, she writer. Was, she, yeah, on she was on the, in the writing room when they won, yeah. I think, for best writing in a sitcom. She's been on Kirby Enthusiasm. She's been on Blackish. She plays one of Dre's bosses from time to time. And she has this new show, which I haven't seen yet, called The Upshaws, which is on Netflix. It's Kim Fields and Mike Epps. And she's been in lots of dramas as well. She was the comedian on the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2009 for Obama. She talks about that in the special, actually, about how she was asked to do that. And I won't (laughs) spoil the joke for what she, if you guys haven't seen it yet, but (laughs) what they asked her to not say when she's on it. But it's it's pretty funny. She's great, openly out, uh, lesbian, a comedian. Tell us about this special. Why'd you pick this one? You don't want to talk about when she was on CBS's The New Adventures of Old Christine, huh? You didn't like that? I basically like anything that Julia Louis-Dreyfus does, so... It was a good show. It was a good show. Now, here's the thing. This is a very tough-to-find special. You can go on YouTube and watch clips of it, and that's almost recommendable because it really gets to the heart of some good stuff. And it's many things. Overall, it's just a very entertaining special. You know, she goes in on America, right? She talks about the mess that is America, even though she's in the Obama years, even though, you know, President Obama has gotten her to... Or let's say he's attended her specials. He's been in the audience. The Obamas are big fans of hers. But this special tackles a lot of the mess of America that was still there under the Obamas, education system, healthcare, undocumented workers. She talks about gay versus black, which I think is a very funny bit. The reviews on this special are that some of it feels like it's recycled material. Some of it feels like a well-worn territory. But I think this is about watching somebody who is a masterful entertainer a masterful orator and storyteller, great, great joke writer, and so good in the performance. The Michelle Obama joke that she has, that act out is really something special. It's really, really great when she talks about how, when will we see the real Michelle Obama? You know, And she's like, you know what they're talking about. And I, I think that you can look up. A tough special to find, as I say, but Anything you find from Wanda Sykes, I think you should, it's worth looking into. Incredible. She's a brilliant person. You know, she had like top security level clearance. She worked in Washington with the government and and left a very well-paying job. Yeah, she used to work for the NSA, I think. The NSA. And so she left that to become a comedian. So, you know, sometimes when she's doing basic jokes, it's like she's probably dumbing that down for the audience. She jokes about how Americans are, we're very dumb people. These are the various things we require just to understand things. But in general, I think she's a phenomenal performer. And any Wanda Sykes special, Not Normal is another great one, more available, is a good one to watch. And I think she's somebody who should absolutely be celebrated. I think one thing with Wanda Sykes is she has, again, I'm trying to like, not that I'm going to become a stand-up comedian, but I'm trying to learn from these ones. And, and again, I'm trying to figure out why did you pick these ones? And I think one thing with Wanda Sykes is she has a lot of patience with her jokes. Not patience in the hospital that I take care of, but patience in terms of well, – Thanks lets, for clearing <laughs> that up. People were worried that Dr. Wanda Sykes might be moonlighting as a comedian. No, yeah, she's okay. not a real doctor, actually. Not a real doctor. She has a lot of patience with her jokes. She lets you wait for the punchline and kind of formulate it in your head. And sometimes she'll just pause and use silence, right? Which, again, I know lots of comedians do, but it takes a bit of – 
um, like I said, patience to not talk over yourself, let the moment breathe, let people start to come to their own conclusions about what you're talking about and find the humor in that. And then you hit them with perhaps what they're thinking and perhaps not what they're thinking, right? You take a detour. There's a whole bit. It's, it's, I can't even explain it, but it's about her wearing Spanx and, and things like that and appearing on, I can't even explain it to you. It's, you just have to listen to it. But just she lets people sit in this absurd thing of parts of her body under the spanks being anthropomorphized. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, but like Close talking enough. and talking, you know, talking back and forth. Anyway, it's just ridiculous. But she lets you sit in that absurdity of what's going on and laugh about it. And then she continues on with her joke. It's really amazing. Agreed. That partridge in a pear tree song, the only bit we like of it is that five partridge. People go berserk at that point. People running in from other rooms. Five You know, the rest of it we don't know. Uh, above, above that, it's a 12 monkeys mating, 11 donkeys dancing, 10 pygmies farming, 9 socks are swimming, and five I picked these specials because I think we've seen the straight white men, dude. We all know about the straight white men. It, and, and I think that's why I picked Chappelle and wanted to talk about that joke, too. You know, it's very serious to talk about this missing white girl syndrome. But there's also the offshoot, or if you want to call it the corollary of that, is that we will naturally be shown more white male comedians specials over the years. So I wanted to show something a little bit different and highlight some other talent. And, you know, Wanda as a, as a queer black woman, I thought it was a good special. But then that is also why I think this special, which is one of the most brilliant specials I've ever seen in my life, watched it once before I was a comedian and once again since, Dressed to Kill, Eddie Izzard. Now, this again was in San Francisco. She recorded mm-hmm. in San Fran, and that says something about San Fran, that both Dave Chappelle and Eddie Izzard could, you know, would want to record there. I will note this for people in case they're confused about why I'm saying she. Eddie Izzard has said that she's gender fluid. She prefers she and her pronouns. She doesn't mind he and him. This has been said. And she's also said that she knew she was transgender at the age of four. In in this special, in fact, you know, there's this kind of educational moment right at the beginning where Eddie says, I'm a transvestite, which means I'm basically a male tomboy. I'm not a drag queen. Gay men have got that covered. I'm a male lesbian is what it is, right? So there's, as they say in public radio, a lot to unpack there. But I think it was a good education for some people. And I think it is. And you have to remember, this is 1998, 1999. I'll never stop remembering that. One of the first openly out there trans people was Eddie Izzard. It forms part of the comedy show, but not the whole thing. And what I'm amazed at, this is a two-hour comedy special, and it's just joke after joke. It is, I mean, it's unbelievable. This is the whole thing. 1998, and she comes out, you know, in kind of a Asian rap kimono style. I don't know exactly what that outfit would be called. Makeup is on, heels are on, and it's 98. I mean, yeah, it's San Fran, but this is also like, there's a real balls out bravery behind this. And I later found out that this special is like a lot of free association, a lot of improv, just, you know, it's called a uh, ideas-based comedy, which is hilarious. So what Eddie Azar does is, I'm going to talk about this subject, and then she comes on stage and just starts 
free associating stuff. And you even hear her on stage go like, okay, that didn't work. I'll never link those two things again. But in general, it's just masterful. So I want to ask you a bit about this. We can go into some more specifics of the special in a second, but I've heard it described as stream of consciousness as well, which it is, but stream of consciousness makes you think like it's some pretentious novelist, just like writing whatever makes no sense. And you kind of roll your eyes and put the book aside and don't pick it up again. But that's not what's going on here. It all makes sense. It all ties together. But I, I was wondering like how much of that is planned because I know some comedians have a persona like this where it seems to be all stream of consciousness and really quick jokes and back and forth, but there's a lot of planning that goes on. The popular comparison would be maybe a Robin Williams. This is not as quick and as like hyperactive, like ADHD style as Robin Williams. Not, not as at much all. cocaine in Eddie Izzard's system, I imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I don't know. So it's hard for me to know like how much of this is planned out, how much of it is not. And I don't know if you have any insight into that, or maybe we'll never know, or or it just depends on the comedian. Some of them, everything is planned out to a T. It's very loosely planned out. I have some friends who are not comedians who are Eddie is our, what do you call them? Uh, super fans, stands, right? And they have said going to see an Eddie is our show is a bit of a crapshoot. Oh. It's 70% of the time it is phenomenal and your mind is blown and you're like what did you what did we just see and 30 percent of the time it's like "Ah, i was okay because on stage eddie is trying to often find what is the funny in this in that moment having seen that live with certain comedians i think of uh, sean cullen who's great canadian Mm -hmm. comedian having watched sean cullen's mind you know he's been compared to sort of like an eagle some predatory bird. I don't know if an eagle is a predatory bird. Circling, circling. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the right term? I don't know. Predatory. He circles and bird of prey. There you go. Of course. So he circles and circles and circles. And then once he finds the meat, dives in. So while the circling's happening, you're just sort of like, what is happening right now? This is not particularly funny. It's kind of funny because he's still a gifted comedian. But it's like, what's going on? And then as soon as he finds his thing, he dives in and makes a meal out of it like you can't imagine. And it's, you're like, oh, that was all worth it. You know, whereas some people like you wait so long, you're like, yeah, not really worth it in the end. So I've seen comedians do this kind of stuff. I've seen comedians really make something incredible out of nothing. And so I know it's possible. I know it exists. It's not something I can do for two hours, certainly. Maybe something I can do for about five minutes. I know that that level of genius exists, but to see it and know about it is absolutely incredible. There's two things I want to say about this special. Number one, it's biting political, sociopolitical satire, right? In 1998, she is talking about, which first of all, she's roasting Americans, two Americans, and getting applauded for it. She's dismantling ideas about Islamic jihad, the very practice of singing an anthem or pledging allegiance to anthems and queens and the colonization of the indigenous. It's really like tackling some very heavy subjects and putting up the, what do you want to say, the mirror to these subjects in the most hysterical way. That's the first thing. Secondly, and this is very notable to me, especially when I watch this now, the use and the non-use of accents. So. You'll notice when Eddie talks about the British landing in India, 
and saying like, ah, we've discovered this place. He's like showing them walk around. He goes, oh, there's nobody here. We've discovered this place. And up, oh, excuse me, excuse me, walking around and uh, above people, you know, to get around and put play. And then when the Indian person talks, it's the exact same British voice. Excuse me. We actually live here. There's 500 million of us. Well, do you have a flag? No, you don't have a flag. Well, we have a flag. So this is ours. The same thing goes for when he's talking about indigenous people. There's no attempt at an accent or anything. And then the first time you hear her talk about do an accent is when she's talking about the mob, but she's not really talking about the mob. She's just talking about like how people would be greeted by like a Sopranos character. And so she does that voice. And it's really, really interesting to me. You know, even at one point she's talking about this European, you know, German European character. And she says, eine Minuten bitte, ich habe einen kleinen Problemo avec dies religiono. She says, oh, he was from everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it's like she's, I don't know, It's it, it struck me and I might be making too much of a meal out of this, but. Being from a community that is marginalized or persecuted in some way, the trans community, I think she herself is very, very careful. I never saw this in an interview. I never saw her talk about this, but I just believe this to be the case that she's obviously a gifted impressionist, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Impersonator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But she chooses who to impersonate very, very carefully. And I think that's because of her own background. And I think... I never picked up on it years ago when I watched this, and I picked up on it recently, and I thought it was particularly commendable. It's really great. You know, you don't want to hammer home ugly stereotypes about people, and I think Eddie Azar does a great job at managing that. One absolutely amazing thing it happens at the end of this special. This special also builds and builds, and the last two jokes or bits are just absolutely amazing like i laughed out loud but the very last bit has her talking about french and learning french and learning these unusual phrases in french and then having to use those in real life conversation which is a bit of a hacky joke but well-worn material absolutely. But but. the way that she does it is unbelievable because the last i would say 10 minutes of the special are all in french to an audience in san francisco who are not native French speakers for the most part, unlike in Canada, where you might have some pockets, obviously in Quebec and elsewhere of people who speak French. And there, people laugh all the way through this this French. And the French isn't like sophisticated French or anything like that. So in other words, people can no, understand. No, but she is a French speaker. Eddie Azard performs in French. We'll do comedy in French. Eddie Azard learns other languages and does stand up, which is amazing. And the fact that you get so many laughs and it just keeps building and building, even though you're speaking a completely different language, I've never seen anything like it. Even if I know it's, it's a two-hour special, if you can't watch the whole thing, like I said, the last 10 or 15 minutes, so good. You should definitely check that out. I'd say the first half an hour or the first 35 minutes are to be watched for sure, if you're short for time, and then the last two bits. But really, in itself, you know, understanding what genius you're watching in this special and appreciating it. It's worth watching. And one quick shout out to another one of Eddie Azard's bits from the, it was from the next comedy special that she did. There's a whole bit about Darth Vader going. So there's these mini skits just, just that she'll do playing both voices. It's yeah. about Darth Vader going to the Death Star cafeteria and trying to like order food there. And the trays are wet, which is like, so that's the joke. That's a small <laughs> joke, right? How trays yeah. are always wet in the cafeteria. 
what someone did years ago is they put maybe like seven years ago they put like little Lego Star Wars characters as stop motion, and so they're acting out this bit, and it's like a couple of minutes, but it's and that's actually how I first heard about Eddie's. Oh, you're joking? Okay, that's great. Yeah, I was watching that and discovered the other stuff too. So anyway, so that's a, just a little shout out for the next comedy special. So this part of the show actually comes to us. We took a deep dive courtesy of one of our listeners. Allison asked, how do babies develop laughter and humor? And I thought, that what a great question. So if you're a pediatric neurologist, also you're humorless. So the two things kind of, there's a nice little symmetry there. Symmetry, synergy, it lit some curiosity for me as well about other questions I have <laughs> about laughter in kids and in adults. But let's start with Allison's question. How do babies develop laughter and humor? Okay. So laughter and humor and smiling, that's all kind of ingrained to occur in in humans. We could talk maybe a little bit why, from an evolutionary standpoint, that actually occurred, but it definitely occurs in babies. So they start to smile around five weeks of age. So just so you know, babies make eye contact, uh, can see about 12 inches from their face by around five or six weeks or so. Shortly after that, they're going to be developing smiling because that 12 inches from their face is you could think of a baby's breastfeeding and they look up, what will they see? About 12 inches away is their mother's face, right? So that's what they kind of fix on and look at that. And then they get this smiling, which a lot of people think is a reciprocal thing because a baby will smile and then their parent will smile back. And then they kind of reinforces that loop of smiling, right? You're saying that all babies have this? There's no disorder out there in the world with, you know, humorless babies not, or babies not, that just not don't? Not really. Not really. Nothing recorded? No, not really. Really? Okay, yeah. interesting. I mean, yeah. Because some people might say, well, what about babies who have autism or something like that? But it's not really with regards to this kind of laughter and things like that. There's other things. And we can do another episode about autism and things like that uh, uh, later on if you guys want, but not really. And so laughter then emerges about the fourth month. And of course, course, there's videos on YouTube of just babies laughing, right? It's so fun to see. So I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think of games we can play with a little baby, right? Or toys or things like that. What makes a baby laugh? What is the one kind of game out of all games you play with a baby that it would make them laugh? Pull my finger is a good one. Oh my god! Which no, you don't like that one, baby. You know, oh always, my gosh, that one makes you laugh, Asif. When I ask yeah. you to pull my, I finger. mean, I thought you were going to say Monopoly, but no. Listen, man, Risk. it's 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 Peekaboo. Okay, so Peekaboo, and really, we're linked to an interesting article that that talks about this. But what really babies want is adult attention and that interaction or that human connection. And so they're more likely to laugh at a peekaboo than say like playing with a toy or using a puppet or something like that because it's the eye contact and that connection with the baby with when you're uncovering, you know, their eyes or your eyes with a peekaboo and the fact that the game is keeps going on it causes them to laugh and then you laugh and then that's this bit of sharing and attention and this conversation basically that's happening in a baby because remember babies laugh much before they can talk, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, 6 months probably at least before they can talk. So this this is one of their preliminary ways of interacting with adults is through laughing. I remember before my son could talk very early on, one of the greatest things I ever witnessed was my son is sleeping and I was like, uh, Maz, Maz. And then he opened his eyes and went, ha ha, 
like as if like fooled you. I wasn't actually sleeping, and I was like, "What? This guy." He's a comedy prodigy. So this is unbelievable. And then, of course, he's not a comedy prodigy. He's a pretty serious kid. But it was one of the greatest moments. I was like, he's playing tricks with me. He's playing a prank on me. It's insane. Doesn't know a word. Doesn't know one word. And already, I loved it. Well, it's interesting you say that because as children develop, so now they're infants, like a year or so, what they find funny is things that are like surprising. So that kind of surprise that they're causing with you or you mm-hmm. surprise them with something like a jack-in-the-box or toy or something like that, they find that funny. And uh, toddlers, as they get older, they find like ridiculous concepts surprising. But interestingly, they also find cruel jokes funny. And that's why a toddler will sometimes do things like take a bowl of cereal and dump it on your head and things like that. You're like, what What are you doing? But that kind of cruelty actually, because it boosts their self-assertiveness and as they're trying to assert themselves at around that toddler years, like two years or so, they do that. And of course, they also find, Ali, something very funny that you do with your pull my finger lame joke. Toilet humor is also very mm. funny to toddlers. I mean, that's your brand really, right? That's so. my brand. I know my audience. I know my people. Still, the word butthole will have them rolling over. It's sad and amazing. Yeah. Can I tell this story? Like last winter, Ali's family was visiting us and we were out tobogganing and we were talking about different toboggans, right? There's some that are kind of foam that are really fast. And then there's those crazy carpets aren't that fast. And so I was talking to Ali's son and it was like, well, you know, we have- Which son was it? The younger okay. one. Okay. So Four he's like six. Yeah. Yeah. Five yeah. at the time, I guess. And then we said, oh, we don't have any foam ones, but maybe we can borrow one of those crazy carpet ones, but they're, they're not as good for sledding and he's like yeah it's kind of like uh, sitting on a turd (laughs) i think i spit out my food laughing anyway which is not even was he trying to make you laugh because that is nothing like sitting on a turd i don't know I don't know. Anyway, so that's kind of like the summary of how laughter develops. And then, of course, we get into older kids, right? The the preteen and teenage years, they're always awkward. There's always this tension in these teens and adolescents. So there's a lot of sarcasm, as we all know. Okay, that's like a classic thing. I haven't really evolved from that, but, uh, you know, still. And then they focus on things like the focus on sex, food, authority figures, kind of like – that rebelliousness, right? The rebellion of teenage years that kind of will be seen in their humor as well. And a lot of off-limit kind of jokes. And of course, young people, as we talked about with that sarcasm kind of humor, they'll use humor to either protect themselves, right? Oh, I'm self-conscious. I'm going to make a joke here or to feel superior to others, which is bullying. But sometimes they'll use that the guise of humor for that. So that's kind of this trajectory. And of course, once you're an adult, your humor is totally sophisticated and, you know, no sarcasm, no mean jokes. Of course not. It's all... Uh, well, open. in fact, uh, you know, to, to highlight the opposite point of what you're making, but you're just making it sarcastically, obviously, is one thing that always works. And I've, I've talked about this on this podcast. One thing that works in the comedy room when you start making fun of somebody like a uh, nice haircut. Did your mom do that with a bowl? Whatever fun you want to make of somebody's clothes or appearance or look in general, people are on board, especially if it's a choice. You know, somebody had no choice in how they look, and they, you know that's different. But if somebody made a choice, like a haircut, like a fashion sense, fashion style, man, if you can do that well as a comedian, you've got 10 minutes right there. If you can make fun of people in a way that allows them to retain maybe a shred of their dignity, 
And even that's not that important sometimes. The audience usually have the rest of the audience. Well, now everybody who listens to our podcast is going to go out like <laughs> not on a comedy mock, stage and just like insult people. people. Oh, this is how I'm going to get friends. It's not. Okay. So we've covered how laughter develops as you get older. What areas of the brain does humor and laughter exist in? Do they exist in the same place? Yeah, that's interesting. And it's tough. There's, as always, it's kind of complicated, right? Let's start with laughter. And there's a very, very good article from a journal, scientific journal called Brain. That's actually the name of the journal, excellent mm -hmm. journal. And so they have a very good review, which basically they review all the literature in the history of looking at this issue. So laughter depends on certain neural pathways. And very interestingly, the center for laughter is in an area called the brainstem, which is a very, very deep area in our brain. It's the back part of our brain that connects to the spinal cord. Spine, yeah. You know, in other words, what maintains our level of consciousness is there. What regulates our breathing is in the brainstem. What regulates our eye movements is in the brainstem. So it's very, very basic area of the brain. But that's kind of where laughter, it's the final common pathway for laughter occurs in the brainstem, which is very interesting. Again, indicating that it's, it's kind of evolutionary, something that's a very basic function. And what happens is this area of the brainstem receives inputs from many different areas. So we have the prefrontal area, the temporal lobes, as well as areas from the basal ganglia and hypothalamus. The hypothalamus we know is it has to be involved in laughter because we talked many episodes ago about a type of seizure, which is called the gelastic seizure, which is a laughing seizure, right? A, a seizure without, it's called mirthless laughter laughing without any obvious cause. And that we know is related to the hypothalamus and the temporal lobe. And so all these inputs come in, but the final pathway for which laughter is then expressed is in the brainstem. Just to be clear, it's very common that people will laugh when they're nervous and stuff like that. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about laughter with no reason whatsoever. Correct. Is absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly. There's absolutely no reason for it. Okay. They're not in a laughter yoga class. They just have no. You're saying it's complicated. I imagine it's because everybody's sense of humor is so kind of, you know, unique to them. Yes. And the definition of what humor is, is different, right? Is it a pun? Is it uh, some a pratfall, right? Like all these things are different. So it's sometimes it, that it's hard to get a common definition of that to then see, okay, what areas of the brain are involved. You're telling me that all babies have the ability to laugh, but then sense of humor would be a different situation, right? Is there a condition where you could be born without a sense of humor or lose your sense of humor at some point? Yeah, born without, not really, but losing it, that has been shown. And the loss of function like this usually occurs because of strokes. So by looking at the scientific literature in strokes, we can see, okay, this area you've had a stroke in, and these people kind of lose their humor. So what they found when they looked at that is it's, so most people who are right-handed, the left side of the brain is dominant, okay? So it's crossed, it's opposite, okay? So the left brain is dominant in right-handed people. Even mm -hmm. in left-handed people, the left side of the brain is usually still dominant for whatever reason. So it's still the majority of those patients. When we're talking about lesions of the non-dominant hemisphere, we're talking about the right side of your brain. And they've seen people who've had lesions or strokes in this non-dominant right 
hemisphere, they have these abnormal responses to humor. They just don't laugh. They don't find it funny. They don't get the joke. And so it's thought that there's processes in your non-dominant right hemisphere for most people, it's the right hemisphere, that are required to comprehend humor. And they think it's probably more on the front because there are some studies where they looked at people with who had these right frontal lobe lesions, so kind of underneath your forehead area, and they would had difficulty distinguishing a non-humorous from a humorous cartoon. They couldn't figure out Family Circus versus The Far Side. I'm just joking. They're both <laughs> – the family circus being the non-funny one, but I'm just yeah, – uh, come it's... on. That's harsh. The family circus. And they have less physical responses to things that should be funny. So definitely we know it's that right side, especially the right frontal lobe. Hard to know about any more than that. So from a animal and evolutionary perspective, certain animals can laugh. Why did we develop this as a uh... – you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, as human beings, what benefit does it have? That's a really interesting question. So, first of all, we have to think of laughter as a social phenomenon. And that's kind of where these evolutionary biologists and sociologists and anthropologists have kind of looked at this. So, because people are 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than when alone, right? That's why when you go to a comedy show, right? The same comedy show when you're there live versus watching it on tape, you might laugh differently or seeing a funny movie, right? Like I, I, laughing out loud at a comedy movie at home is not that common, but in theater, it's more likely. And even children, we talked about children before, if they watch it, they're more likely to laugh at a cartoon if they're in a group and everybody else is laughing with them. So there's this social aspect to it. And in fact, they have, as you said, seen laughter type behavior in like the great apes. So it occurs in other species, as you said, as well. So they think that human laughter probably dates back to 10 to 16 million years ago. And what happens is laughter, they think, started from like a labored breathing. <laughs> you can think a labored breathing is the precursor to laughter. And with play, when, you know, we were less developed, like I'm not saying we were apes because that's not the way evolution works, but, you know, our ancient ancestors and with young mammals in this common ancestor – they may be tickling or having competitive games, and then they'd have this labored breathing associated with it. And that kind of evolved into this laughter. And then there were the idea is that it's this shared arousal response, right? So they think that this laughter, this heavy breathing, which turned into laughter, strengthens social bonds. And one thing they've likened it to is primates will do grooming on each other, right? They'll pick out you know, bugs sure. and eat them like we've seen this on like a National Geographic specials and things like that. Grooming is a very selfless behavior, right? What are you getting out of it other than this perhaps this bug that you can eat? But really, you're doing it to somebody else like, and there's no real need to do it. But it's a social kind of thing for these primates because it's a generous, it's one-sided and it's a sense of bonding. So the idea was over time, this laughter became a, a bonding kind of mechanism for primates and our primordial ancestors and then to humans. I love the idea that labored breathing is where laughing came from. Are you are you in cardiac distress? No, no, no. I find something very funny. So on that note, does fake laughing have any benefit? From a sociological point of view or an evolutionary point of view, it probably does. We talked before in a previous episode about the 
what was it? Yoga, laugh, laughter, yoga. Laughter, yo, yeah, 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 and yeah, how yeah, you yeah, imitate yeah. laughing, and that can have the same health benefits as real laughter, right? I think the idea there is that you eventually start laughing at how you're imitating laughing, and then everybody's laughing, and it just becomes funny too, right? So it, it becomes genuine laughing. But in the case of fake laughing, I know if somebody fake laughs at me, I don't feel good. But do they get some benefit? Well, let's talk about it from a societal point of view. But in fact, let's backtrack a bit because there's a very interesting neurologist who was involved in this. So this is a guy named – Asif Doja? Close. No. His name is Guillaume Duchenne. Duchenne is very well known in neurology because he discovered a disease which has the initials MD. Do you know what I'm talking about? Muscular dystrophy? Yes. Exactly. He's not just a pretty face, guys. So it's called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So in fact, he's actually not the person who described it. It was described about 30 years before. But anyway, that's the name that's attached to it. We call it Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD. But he was also – he was a, a very active neurologist and he was involved in what are called nerve conduction studies where we basically zap – your nerves on your face or your arms or your legs. And he would go around kind of zapping people's faces and he worked at an old woman's hospice. And so he tried a lot of these nerve conduction studies on these women. And when he stimulated the face, he could reproduce the smile that you get when you're laughing. Okay. But he noticed it's not perfect. That's It's like an imitation of laughter because this is the, it's the muscles around the face, which are the zygomatic muscles that were involved when he would stimulate them. But when you really smile or laugh, it also involves your eyes, which involves the obicularis oculi muscles, the muscles around your eyes. That's why the famous thing that people say is a real smile is worth a million words. No, no. A real smile is in the eyes, right? They, they smile with your eyes is what they always tell you. Like Smize. So smize. Yeah. So and then that's, of course, we're noticing that in the pandemic, right? People are smiling with their eyes more. And he says you cannot reproduce with any sort of electrical stimulation that smiling that and laughter that occurs naturally with, yeah, in the okay. facial expression. You can't do that. So we and so the sociologists kind of grabbed onto that, and then they looked at this issue of this fake smiling and fake laughter, and they found even in primates they will sometimes do a fake laughter as well, even you know, just just like they do at your comedy shows. Ali, they would. Do, I'll tell you, I'm real crying right now. No, I'll tell you that they would do this, and of course we know that. Humans also do that too with fake laughter. Sometimes like people use fake laughter. Again, we talked about this before because they're uncomfortable or they're nervous. And there's some sociological studies where they just follow people around and just looked at the amount of laughter that they had. And quite a significant proportion of their laughter was not in response to anything funny. It's like the nervous laughter, the, oh, I'm insulting you laughter. I'm like, oh, you know, it's so sad. I just know someone diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> Why are you laughing? There's nothing funny about that. Why would you say that? It's our reaction to it. So this kind of other side of laughter can also be seen. And then in terms of the evolutionary aspects for it, you may be doing that fake laughter again to fit in, to be part of a group. Again, we talked, it could be because of nervousness. And we also found that humor can be used to dominate individuals, right? You know, when you're in an office and your boss laughs, everybody has to laugh, right? Your boss uses humor and people use laughter as a way of exercising power and controlling others and controlling the emotional climate of a group, right? You know, when someone says something super insulting and then they laugh afterwards, they say, what? But what? Was that a joke? And then, but they're laughing and, you know, it's a way of kind of exercising that power. So they think laughter, in addition to that group bonding and that positive, has also been created, and the fake laughter as well, to control the behavior and change the behavior of others. 
Sure. As comedians have seen that a lot of times where you do a corporate Christmas show and then nobody laughs until they see the boss laugh. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, it's okay to run. Really? And then you're yeah. like, well, that's all. Fa- oh, yeah, for sure. They're like, I'm not sure if this is appropriate or not. And then, uh, yeah, everybody's just watching their boss. Just People are pretty nervous at work very often. I think the best way to wrap this entire subject up would be to quiz you, Asif. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's see if you know the answer to this question. Is this a fake laugh? Yes or no? <laughs> Definitely real. Definitely real. Okay, good for you. <laughs> Fast with flying colors. You have learned nothing, sir. Ali, before we wrap up, I have a question for you about this laughter stuff. And it's, I don't know how actors can fake laughing. I think I can picture faking crying. I can just think about something super sad that could happen to me or hypothetically happen to somebody I know. But I don't know how you fake laughter, especially with getting all the facial muscles involved like we talked about. Would Duchenne be convinced? How do you guys do this? I don't. I don't do a good job at it. That's my secret. I would, nine times out of ten, give me the crying. Give me the crying. I can, as you say, I can channel something that makes me deeply sad. I haven't learned how to channel things that make me happy, even though there's a thousand things. You can get a nice, real smile out of me, but actual laughter? I don't know. I don't have the secret just yet. It's a tough one. Okay, so that's our show for today. Hopefully you guys found the episode interesting. Just like Allison, be sure to reach out to us with any topic ideas you have. Reach out to us, Dr. V Comedian. We're on Twitter, Instagram, drvcomedian at gmail.com. And remember to rate and review us. As we always talk about, Spotify now has ratings, so we want some ratings on there. If you don't mind, just check out Spotify and give us a rating there. We need about 100 or so, so if you could keep checking that out for us, that would be great. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 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 What about this one? This is what I usually go with. (laughs) Well, that was pretty good. I know. That's all I got. I have to wheeze for anybody to buy it. An orange monster crashes out of a building in Midtown. A man on fire flies through the air. And an atomic bomb is launched over New York City. Are these scenes from a horror movie? Absolutely not, Mike. This is the dawn of the Marvel Universe. Now, how would a regular American citizen experience these world-shaking events? Well, that's what the premise of our show is, the super serious 616 podcast. That's right. We begin in November 1961, when the Thing and the Human Torch reveal themselves to the world for the first time. And from there, we race to keep up with the monsters, the madmen and the aliens, the gods, ghosts and ghouls, and the spaceships, flying cars and miraculous inventions that are suddenly a daily part of American life. We discuss the impact of the monthly destruction of American cities. How would that play out in American society? Would the Fantastic Four get bogged down in lawsuits? What are the geopolitical implications of a superpowered arms race with the Soviet Union? Is Iron Man joining the Avengers a good use of Stark Corp shareholder capital? And 
when will the average consumer get access to the technology behind the flying Fantasticar or unstable molecules? So many amazing questions, Eddie. Now, for our podcast, we treat the month of release as a month the events actually take place. So we start with the Fantastic Four in November 1961. But within 12 months, we see heroes like the Hulk, Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man, and more as the Marvel Universe comes together for the first time. Yeah, you got to remember, for a bystander in 1961, the world's going to change pretty quickly. There's going to be monsters attacking. Aliens invading. And madmen scheming. And the costume heroes who we should, you know, trust? This podcast is for anyone who dreamt of living in one of these worlds where strange, the fantastic, and the incredible are day-to-day events. You don't need to know much about Marvel Comics. Just, you know, bring your sense of adventure and imagination. And your sense of logical reasoning. <laughs> of course. Now, if you love Marvel Comics, you're going to love Super Series 616. And if you hate Marvel Comics, then you think they're ridiculous and unrealistic, then you too will love Super Serious 616. And, you know, we're kind of uh, we're kind of for everybody on this podcast. We are for everyone. And this is the last you're going to hear of Mike and Ed from 2021. The next episode is going to be a promotion for the show that was recorded back in October 1961. That's right. See you, uh, see you then. <laughs> and subscribe now. You will never look at comic books the same way again. (laughs) 